Navalny was poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent, survived by accident, is in jail where he's constantly thrown into solitary confinement and not given enough food. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, March 10th. Today, Julia Yaffe joins me to talk about the incredible documentary, Navalny, which is up for best documentary at this weekend's Oscars. The film follows Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny as he recovers from his assassination attempt at the hands of Putin's henchmen and his decision to return to Russia, where he was arrested and jailed back in 2021. Julia talked to one of the film's main characters, and she explains why the film matters, especially in the context of today's Russia. And later, Tina Wynn joins Ben Landy to discuss how CPAC, Washington's annual conservative activist conference, went off the rails this year. We'll discuss all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. The Oscars are this weekend, so I'm joined today to talk all things Hollywood, all things red carpet by Julia Yaffe. <laughs> Julia, who's just kidding. Um, I am going to talk to Julia, though, about one category at the Oscars, and that is best documentary. There are lots of actually pretty amazing documentaries this year, tight category, but there's one that jumped out to you, Julia, and that is Navalny. <laughs> For yep. obvious reasons, probably. You interviewed Christo Grozev, who is the lead Russia investigator for Bellingcat, about his role in this film. And he really had some insight into Alexei Navalny, both before and after his poisoning at the hands of Putin's operatives back in, when was that, 2020? Yep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to step back for a minute, can you just like set up what this documentary is about and why, as an expert in Russia, as you are, what made it so compelling to you? So the documentary follows Alexei Navalny after his poisoning by the Russian security services using Novichok, which is a military-grade nerve agent. And it follows his recovery in Germany and his return to Russia and his immediate arrest on landing in Moscow. It explains who he is. It shows him running for president in 2018. Of course, he was not allowed on the ballot. It showed him kind of glad-handing all over Russia and uh, opening up these campaign offices and showing kind of what a political force he had become, uh, and then which kind of set up why he was poisoned. Mm -hmm. For me, I wrote the first profile of Navalny in the West back in 2011 when people didn't really know who he was here, and he was just a blogger exposing corruption schemes. I wrote a profile for him for The New Yorker and have followed him through his whole career. I've also, in the wake of the poisoning, I also wrote a long profile of his wife, Yulia, for Vanity Fair, and talked to Christo a lot, actually, for that. Mm -hmm. But even for me, even for somebody who has tracked Navalny's campaign very closely for over a decade, who has spoken to him many times, who has, who knows everybody in that film, it was still so compelling even for somebody for whom this was in some ways it was even more compelling because I knew these people uh, what made it really especially poignant for me was that the Russia they showed is just gone now 
mm-hmm. in the wake of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine that started last February, it just made me think how we get used to how you boil a frog, essentially. Because back in the day when Navalny was running for president and he was followed everywhere by the FSB and people get arrested or beaten at his rallies, you know, he was arrested when he arrived in Moscow, but there were still huge crowds waiting for him in the airport and chanting his wife's name after he was arrested. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, that to me was like, wow, what an amazing, beautiful time that was. Because now everybody's in jail, everybody's out of Russia, and I just couldn't help watching the scenes of these protests and these rallies that were tens of thousands of people strong and wondering how many of those people still lived in Russia. Probably not a lot. Yeah, that jumped out at me from your piece, Julia, for people listening, published this as a Q&A with Grozev. But this struck me from our last conversation on this podcast, when you wrote about how people in cities and towns and villages were coming to grips with the war. And I sort of came into that conversation having a hunch that there would still be some, you know, restive pockets in the country. And there were some people who were getting tired of the war. But as you said, like more than a million people have left Russia and a lot of them were regulars at the protests. And like, I remember those images Mm -hmm. of those crowds in the streets. Uh, And it does feel like yesterday, but at the same time, like anything before the pandemic, it feels like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, And it it certainly does in this case. And also, uh, the the other thing I want to say about that is that there are people in Russia who don't support the war, who wish it would end. But because of what they did to Navalny, because of what they've done to everybody around him, uh, most of the people on his team can't live in Russia anymore because there are criminal mm-hmm. cases that have been opened against them. Navalny mm-hmm. was poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent, survived by accident, is in jail where he's constantly thrown into solitary confinement and not given enough food. And they put people in his cell who are obviously openly contagiously sick and then don't give him medical attention when he inevitably gets sick from them. Mm-hmm. And people see that, and that's why there are no protests. Because like we talked about last week, people see that not only will it get them in trouble, but it won't change anything. And Mm -hmm. so in part because of what happened to Navalny, which you can see in this documentary, you can see that people who are regular people who are not as brave and not as zealous, Mm -hmm. who are not as committed to the cause, who just, you know, they have one life to live and they just want to live it in peace and you know, take their kids to school and go to the grocery store and just have a normal life, they're not up for what Navalny has been through, right? And that's why you don't see so many protests because repression works. People in the West, I think particularly on the left, <laughs> kind of like to turn freedom fighters overseas into heroes, you know, and a lot of them are. But you know, like Che, <laughs> Mandela, <laughs> you know, uh, these people are more flawed than the, you know, rapturous narratives that follow them. On Song Suu Kyi. Exactly. A thousand percent. Great example. One narrative that's around this film, though, is that it's pretty honest about Navalny's shortcomings. What are the criticisms of Navalny for people who, like, don't necessarily know them? The criticisms of people around Navalny is it's like his staff and people around him are like a cult and they don't accept outsiders and they don't I mean it was amazing knowing how his team works to see how much access Daniel Rohr and his and his team got to Navalny's team those people are very closed they don't let in outsiders which is explainable because they're 
under such duress, right? Mm -hmm. As one of his, of Navalny's former lieutenants told me, you know, it's all well and good to be friends with everybody when they're not, you know, trying to kill you. But when you're in, in so much danger, you have to kind of batten down the hatches and turn inward. Mm -hmm. But a lot, it, it, it does turn some people off. He doesn't, Navalny doesn't love the press. He doesn't love the mm -hmm. independent press, like a lot of politicians. He created his own media network, right? That mm -hmm. the YouTube channels, the blogs, mm -hmm. they had their own TV station essentially on YouTube, which bypassed a lot of journalists and they are not especially cooperative with journalists. He can be quite prickly and can be a bit of an asshole. Mm. And of course, probably most importantly, he has his past dalliances with the Russian far right, with the nationalist. Mm. He went and spoke at the Russian March in 2011 where there were neo-Nazis hmm. in the crowd. And I went to that and I saw his speech and the speech was frankly a little bit anti-Semitic after which he and I hmm. got into a, I tweeted about it and he called me and we got into a screaming match about it. Because hmm. I was like, your speech is a bit evocative of, of a blood libel, sir. Hmm. And he got quite mad about that. But yeah, and it's something that he's asked about all the time. And he is so annoyed. You could You could see him get so annoyed with the director for even asking the question, which is also very Navalny. But at the same time, it shows why he's been so successful. He is mm -hmm. wickedly charming, wickedly mm -hmm. funny. When I met him back in 2010 and he was just a blogger, I remember feeling, and I was just gonna do a blog post about him back in the days of blogs, but a then I remember- A weblog, yeah. And <laughs> I was like, wait, holy shit, this guy's like a young Bill Clinton. Like he has that mm. insane magnetic charisma and he's very, very um, effective. So Grozev, who you interview, uh, he actually helped Navalny find his assassins. Do you call them potential assassins if they didn't actually get the job done? I don't know what the answer is there. Attempted um, assassins? <laughs> failed attempted assassins? assassins? I don't know, yeah, the gang failed assassins. Well, yeah. Exactly. Well, that brings up something really interesting uh, from your conversation, which is some of these guys were morons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my favorite part of the film, I just, I burst out laughing during the film. And we talked about this with Christo in the interview was they have this, they just refer to it, that kind of stupidity in the secret services as Moscow 4, because mm -hmm. they, they hacked the account of the deputy chief of the GRU because his password was Moscow 1. And then after he realized he'd been hacked, he, of course, changed his password. But he changed his password to Moscow 2. And then they hacked him again. And so he changed his password to Moscow 3. You know, and, and a lot of Christo's investigations for Bellingcat and with his Russian partner, the insider, they catch these guys kind of in flagrante because they leave... For example, there was one where they've caught GRU officers because they left their cab receipts just lying around. They left them in, in a cab. And mm -hmm. the pickup location for the cab was GRU headquarters, hmm. right? And so they just like, and I always thought it was stupidity and sloppiness, which is just Russian society and Russian culture is just shot through this kind of sloppiness and mm -hmm. don't give a fuckness. But Christo explained it as something more interesting, as a kind of uh, hubris that he called it uh, the hunter cannot be hunted syndrome. Mm -hmm. These mm -hmm. guys rely on their reputation for terror 
and think that nobody would dare go after them, which is why they don't even bother kind of cleaning up the fingerprints and the footprints, which I found to be a very interesting explanation. But there, there is a lot of that. They leave a lot of breadcrumbs for people like Christo. Well, everyone go read Julia's piece and more importantly, watch Navalny. It's on HBO Max, yes. I believe, yep. um, before Sunday night or after Sunday night. We have a little bit of a lull on premium TV uh, until late March when Succession and Yellow Jackets comes back. Oh my back. God, so, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. <laughs> um, Navalny can fill that void. All right. Thanks so much, Julia. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Tina Wynn talks to Ben Landy about the CPAC Carnival. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, talking to the one and only Tina Wynn. Hi, Ben. Tina, you wrote earlier this week about CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which used to be this big tent gathering for all stripes of conservative activists and is now sort of mostly the Trump show. And in fact, I I thought it was very notable that while Trump gave a speech and he won the annual straw poll, no surprise, Ron DeSantis did not appear at all. And I'm, I'm sort of curious what you make of that, what the political calculus was for DeSantis in choosing not to attend. So the official reason that the DeSantis team gave was that he had a conflicting event going on in Texas, which, you know, cool, that's a thing you can go to inside of CPAC. But the thing is with CPAC is that this is a uh, event that's gone on for decades now since the rise of Ronald Reagan. And it was always known in the Republican Party and the conservative world as the premier event for conservative activists, grassroots types, organizers, students, think tank people, the real like beating heart of the party to gather in one place. And every single Republican, conservative, libertarian-ish politician who wanted to court this crowd had to show up. And it was easy for them to do that because, you know, they're on Washington, they cross the river, they go to the hotel that's nearby. Everyone's super happy to see each other and they debate over who it is that they want, yada, yada, yada. But I think it speaks to the diminished nature of CPAC as the institution itself that DeSantis felt like he could get away with skipping it. The big thing that people have taken away from this CPAC is, one, the attendance is way, way, way lower Two, the number of people they can get on stage is not as much as they used to. But three, like, what is the incentive for someone to go to CPAC, which is obviously a super Trumpy place run by a guy whose wife was formerly in the Trump administration, who has openly like pledged himself to Trump? Why would he go there and have a whole bunch of people boo him? It doesn't look good. And there's not enough people at that conference to justify winning them over. No, that's totally a great point. And as you reported the other day, I mean, Nikki Haley delivered a speech. These are people that she needs to appeal to. Uh, She took a risk in going there. And she was sort of chased uh, after she left the stage by screaming Trump supporters and when she fled into the elevator. Um, So it, it is sort of a hostile environment at this point for anyone who is not Trump. And like, who's the most not Trump person in the Republican Party than Ron DeSantis? I mean, yeah, like, of course, they have pretty similar agendas. But the thing is that DeSantis is not Trump. And anyone who's not Trump and trying to challenge Trump is like automatically the worst guy in, you know, Trump supporters eyes. 
One thing that's fascinating to me is that Ron DeSantis has so obviously been trying to mimic Trump in certain ways. He's picked up some of his mannerisms. I don't know if like the sort of ill-fitting suits is actually something that he lifted deliberately from Trump. But, you know, there are all these videos you can find online of how he's sort of like trained himself to use the same hand movements. Um, Obviously, there are certain aspects of Trump's rhetoric that he's tried to pick up. But not to play armchair psychologist, but I wonder if also Ron DeSantis is trying very hard to delay the inevitable confrontation with Trump, where these two are actually juxtaposed side by side and audiences truly get a look at the really notable differences between the two of them. I have actually this quote from Trump at CPAC. He delivered this sort of characteristically fire and brimstone speech where he said, quote, The Republican Party was ruled by freaks, neocons, open border zealots, and fools. We're never going back to the party of Paul Ryan, Karl Rove, and Jeb Bush. I almost felt like he could have said, and Ron DeSantis, who, again, is trying very hard to court the MAGA constituency. But he's also a guy who recently received the sort of pseudo-endorsement of Jeb Bush, who um, said that DeSantis, like him, a former governor of Florida, was doing a good job overseeing the state. So I do wonder if that was also part of his thinking besides not attending to sort of prolong this moment where they inevitably come face to face and DeSantis risks looking the worst for that comparison. Mm, I would definitely say that's the case. Yeah, I think CPAC would have been a terrible place for them to have any sort of confrontation, even if they spoke on different days. But I could also see DeSantis not wanting to give Trump a lot of runway to attack him between now and, oh, God, the first primary is literally in like 10 months. That's forever in political years. And thinking back to 2016, when you had all of these potential front runners face Trump, let's say Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, both of those come to mind. Trump had so many months to attack all of those guys and drill them into the ground. And by the time that they limped into Iowa, their personalities had already been set in stone by Trump. And the more that DeSantis stays out of the race, the less of an obvious reason Trump has to go against him. But the benefit that DeSantis has had is that he hasn't spoken up against Trump. And that's the reason that a lot of um, MAGA-inclined voters liked him, because he wasn't like going around shooting their own. There's a uh, maxim in the Republican Party that was that was like put together by Reagan when he was building the movement from the ground up. And to paraphrase it, it's like, don't go shooting against other conservatives. And the party has moved on from Reaganism. But I would say that the culture of like omerta and not going against one's own has survived into the Trump era. And the longer that DeSantis can refrain from actually attacking Trump, the better it is for him. But if he wants to actually run for president, he's going to have to attack Trump. And I think that he needs to preserve that reputation of his as long as he possibly can. Yeah, I mean, that's the delicate dance that we're going to see all these candidates doing over the next couple months. And I would have to assume that they've all sort of learned the lesson of 2015, 2016, when Trump's challengers came out blazing against him. I mean, you know, uh, guys like Rick Perry and Ted Cruz were saying that, you know, Trump is a cancer on the Republican Party, and Trump just leveled them. And I wonder if this election cycle, we're going to see more of Trump's rivals trying to steer clear of him and hope that he sort of fades or that they can carve out some separate lane rather than taking him head on. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's that's sort of why you keep seeing people who are challenging Trump openly talk about, here's the different direction I want for the Republican Party. Like, they're trying very, very hard to not tie it to Trump. 
they're going to let voters draw their own conclusions on that front. But like being the sensible alternative to whatever happened in the past four years is the safest way that someone can do it now. We'll see what happens when DeSantis jumps in. Tina, one last thought from you on your impressions of CPAC this year. I know you had reported that attendance was down this year. There were fewer sort of high profile, more establishment speakers. Fox was not there as a big sponsor as they've been in the past. And this partly had to do with the fact, potentially, that the guy who was the chairman of the organization behind CPAC, Matt Schlapp, was accused of groping a Herschel Walker staffer. So there, there was sort of a whiff of scandal hanging over the conference this year. And it seemed like maybe some people were staying away for that reason. But you had also written that the youth activists of the party, the the student activists who tended in past years to be a big contingent here, has sort of steered away. There are other opportunities. There are other youth conservative groups that are that are taking a bigger and bigger chunk of this market. Do you think the change in attendance and relevance that we saw in CPAC this year had to do with the sort of media blackout that that Fox was not there as much about the match lap scandal? Or do you think it is just as much about the sort of... Um, migration of student activists to other venues. So I was talking to a person who used to work for the uh, foundation that runs CPAC. And one of the things he noted to me was that CPAC used to be a celebration of the success of a conservative agenda. And now it's become an attack on things that aren't conservative. So one, there's really no point for a conservative activist to go to CPAC and celebrate something. Whereas with, say, Turning Point, it's an opportunity for all these youth activists to come together and be young people who are coming into their own political identity. Turning Point is the youth activist group started by Charlie Kirk that is sort of a competitor to CPAC now in some ways. Oh, yeah. They have a lot of student chapters. They have speakers come to campus and do, like, look at these liberals on campus propagating woke stuff. Uh, But they also started breaking into the live event space. And so they've had maybe about five live events last year, Uh, the biggest of which drew about 10,000 students. Like they all literally would fly into Arizona right after exams in December and listen to Tucker Carlson for like three days straight. But 10,000 people, uh, just to put that into context, that was the number of people at CPAC at its peak, maybe around 2014 or so. And in contrast, you have a CPAC this year that's notably diminished. The conference is never going to release its numbers because that makes them look bad. But you can kind of tell from other tells from the way the conference was run. For instance, they could barely fill up their main ballroom. They didn't have enough people to do breakout sessions. They closed registration on Friday, whereas in years past, they would be selling out of tickets like two, three months in advance. So the idea that CPAC can survive having the core base of young activists see a competitor and go somewhere else. I I mean, I really, really doubt it unless they can, you know, stop being, as one source put it to me, boomer. I don't think that has anything to do with Trumpism or MAGAism. I think that's the reputation of being a conference in Washington, D.C. at the Gaylord Hotel in, my, in um, Maryland. Yeah, there's absolutely a generational shift that's clearly happening here. And Setting aside whether the total MAGA makeover of CPAC is a good thing for American politics, it definitely seems to be sort of a metaphor on some level for changes that are happening within the Republican Party itself, which will surely align with whoever the presidential nominee is when that person is selected. 
But at the same time, it does seem like in this moment right now, we are seeing some of these schisms, some of these gaps, some of these disagreements manifesting themselves in terms of how these big tent Republican events that you should draw, you know, a, a little bit of everybody from across the GOP are now splintering into more niche markets. Mm. Yeah, everything's balkanized now. It's a fun Republican party. Everyone wants to murder each other. Uh, <laughs> what a weird big tent it is. Tina, well put as always. And uh, thanks for dropping by. <laughs> thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.